Have you ever played the game where you tell somebody a story and you have that person tell the same story to somebody sitting next to him or her and you let the story go all the way around the room to see what has been lost in the retelling of that story? It's an interesting experiment. In fact, a school superintendent decided not to do that as an experiment, but just to communicate something to the assistant superintendent and have that dispersed, ended up with a different story. This is what the school superintendent told the assistant superintendent. He said, next Thursday morning at 10.30, Haley's Comet will appear over this area. This is an event which occurs only once every 75 years. Call the school principals, have them assemble their teachers and classes on their athletic fields, and explain this phenomenon to them. If it rains, then cancel the day's observation and have the classes meet in the auditorium to see a film about the comet. Now listen to how it changes from one hand to the next. This is the assistant superintendent telling the same thing, supposedly, to the high school principals. By order of the superintendent of schools, next Thursday at 10.30, Haley's Comet will appear over your athletic field. If it rains, then cancel the day's classes and report to the auditorium with your teachers and students where you will be shown films, a phenomenal event which occurs only once every 75 years. <laughs> then the principals get a hold of it and disseminate it to the teachers, saying, by order of the phenomenal superintendent of schools, at 10.30 next Thursday, Haley's Comet will appear in the auditorium. In case of rain over the athletic field, the superintendent will give another order, something which occurs only once every 75 years. <laughs> then the teachers say to the students, next Thursday at 10.30, the superintendent of schools will appear in our school auditorium with Haley's Comet, something which occurs only once every 75 years. If it rains, the superintendent will cancel the comet and will order us out to our phenomenal athletic field. Then the students tell the same to the parents, but listen to it. When it rains next Thursday at 10.30, over the school athletic field, the phenomenal 75-year-old superintendent of schools will cancel all of the classes and appear before the school in the auditorium accompanied by Bill Haley and the Comets. Boy, I would say that communication has changed a bit. When God communicates to man, it is precise, it is complete, it is never changing. It does not deteriorate. We know God speaks. The writer of Hebrews says, God at different times and in different ways spoke to our fathers in times past through the prophets. God speaks on different levels. And there's probably no better place to see the difference than in Psalm 19. David, in the first six verses, talks about how God speaks through the heavens, through nature. We call this general revelation. As you look and observe the creation, there is a message in it. But then there is another message that you can only find in written revelation in the Bible. And from verses 7 through 11... David talks about special revelation, how God communicates himself through his word. So you have the big book of the universe, you might say, and you have the little book of the Bible. And both of them speak about God, and 
They do not contradict each other. They are very compatible. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, He is wisest who reads the world book and the word book. And he sees them as two volumes of the same work. And when he has finished, he says concerning them, My father wrote them both. And God wrote his signature in the skies, and he also wrote it in the Bible. Let's look then at the first six verses and see how the skies speak. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end, There is nothing hidden from its heat. So David says that the heavens are talking. They're chatting about something. They're chatting up a storm, you might say. They're uttering speech, it says in these verses. For a long time, man has sought to find out if there's something or someone up there that would have a message for us. We know that down in Roswell this weekend, there's a whole huge, many conventions that are gathering over that whole issue of aliens. Harvard University, not too long ago, started perhaps one of the most extensive research experiments into intelligent life in outer space. And they used an 85-foot-in-diameter ear, a receiving dish just outside of Boston. And with the help of advanced computer technology, radio systems, they are capable of receiving 128,000 different frequencies at one time. And then they decipher what is going on. Well, David says the heavens are already talking. They've been talking for a long time. And their message is the glory of God, that God exists and that God is all-powerful. As you look outside and see the sun, the moon, the stars, the message is there is a God. And we ought to all realize that. And I think that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 1. And he said these words, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, the existence of God, His glory, His power, are so obvious in looking around at nature. It should cause all people to believe and acknowledge God's existence and God's power. In other words... When you look and you see the artwork hanging in the universe, and the artwork is that glorious, the sun, the moon, the stars, how much more glorious then is the maker of the artwork, the artist himself? And that's the thought behind these verses. And that's why I think when a child of God sees nature, that he ought to appreciate it more than the unbeliever. After all, we know the the artist, we know the maker. You see a stunning sunset. Every time I see a great sunset or beautiful stars, I want to applaud. Good job, God. Unmatched in beauty, unique. Nobody can reproduce that on film or on any kind of painting. And so we appreciate that. David says then concerning the general revelation in the heavens that it speaks continually. Look at verse 2. Day unto day or day after day 
utters speech. And night after night reveals knowledge. In other words, the message that the heavenly bodies get across is not intermittent. It's not as if when God would send a prophet to give a message one year and then there'd be silence for a couple years and he'd send another prophet. But day after day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year, every year all the way back from the beginning of creation, there is that silent eloquence, God's preachers in the heavens giving forth a message. Not only that, but if you look again in verse 2, we see that this revelation is not only done continually, but abundantly. Day unto day utters speech. If you have an NIV, it says, pours forth speech. That's a better translation. Pours forth speech. The Hebrew is even more direct than the English, and the image that the psalmist is using is of a spring gushing forth, copiously gushing forth, oozing waters of refreshment. And David is saying, no matter where you look, there is this bubbling, oozing forth of the evidence of God's handiwork. Whether you look microscopically at organisms, bacteria, or if you look telescopically at the heavens, it shows that there is a God who designed things. Now, I know people are fond of saying, what a marvelous accident we are. What a coincidence that it just so happened Everything around us that has happened. Well, yeah, it it is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that it just so happened that the sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit at its surface and is 93 million miles away from the earth. Just so happened that it's that far, right? Just so happened that if we were as close as, say, Venus, we'd all die of heat. If we were as far away as Mars, every night would have snow and ice, even in the warmest regions of the earth. It just so happened that the earth is 23 and a third degrees tilted on its axis toward the sun, which gives us four seasons in beautiful balance. It just so happened that it takes 365 spins of the earth as it goes around the sun each year. It's just amazing how that happens. Why not 30 times instead of 365? Because then our days and nights would be 10 times longer And if our days and nights were ten times longer, again, extreme heat, extreme cold, because now the earth, instead of traveling at a thousand miles per hour on its spin, would be traveling at a hundred miles an hour. We couldn't live. And isn't it amazing that it just so happened that there's a perfect balance in our atmosphere of oxygen to nitrogen, 79% to 20, with 1% of variant gases? Isn't that amazing? It's just perfectly suited to breathe. What if it was 50-50? Then you'd really have to watch the anti-smoking laws because the first guy to light up would blow the whole thing to smithereens instantly. It just so happened. It's amazing. It just so happens that our oceans are their present dimensions, right? In water to land mass. But did you know that if our ocean in dimension and depth were half of their present dimension and depth, there would only be a fourth of the rainfall that we experience now on the earth. Things would dry up very, very quickly. And if they were just an eighth larger in their present dimension, that there would be four times the amount of rainfall on the earth and the earth would be a swamp. The truth is, it didn't just so happen. It was just so designed that way by an intelligent, loving creator. And that's why astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle 
was talking about the whole concept of evolution and Darwinism, the concept of spontaneous generation. It just so happened. And this is what he said. The probability of spontaneous generation of a single bacterium is about the same as the probability that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard could assemble a 747 from the contents therein. Impossible. The heavens declare the glory of God. The general revelation is so abundant. Then also we notice in verse 3 and 4 that it's given universally. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line or their speech has gone out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, what nation you're in, nobody's exempt. If you go to a jungle, if you go to the beach, if you go to the mountains, if you go to the desert, there's enough info in that experience that ought to lead a person to realize, wow, there's a God, and cause that person to be thankful for what God has done. And that's why Paul says in Romans 1, therefore they are without excuse, because the general revelation is meant to at least turn the attention of the humanoid to God to realize that there is a God and to be thankful for His glory. Now, speaking of universal, he gives an example in verse 4, 5, and 6 about the sun. He says, In them, that is in the heavens, He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What a great picture of the sun. Like a strong man is the word picture who would get out of his tent in the morning and stretch and fill the earth with light and heat and then in the evening go back into the darkness of his tent. It's just a word picture, but he's showing that the sun is universal. But there's something interesting about the sun itself. In studying the sun, we know that the universe had a beginning. Now up until the beginning of this century, the prevailing idea among scientists, the prevailing cosmology was called the steady state theory. That is, the universe had no beginning and the universe is eternal. And then people had the ability to study the stars like the sun. And now we know that when you go outside today and you feel the heat, you are feeling the release of a part of the mass of the sun. The sun is actually giving away part of its mass. It's losing its mass. 4,200,000 tons per second the sun loses in mass and only recovers about one two hundredth of that, which means that eventually it's going to burn out. Eventually it won't last. And if it is burning out and giving off that much mass, it had to have a beginning. If it's winding down, who wound it up? And the believer has no problem with this. We know there's God. The heavens declare the glory of God. While the learned atheist scratches his head saying, hmm, uh, how did it come? That is why Robert Jastrow, the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, wrote an interesting book called God and the Astronomers. Listen to how he sums it up. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason... The story ends like a bad dream. He has just scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies speak. And every human being in every culture, day in and day out, can see it, can hear it, if they're open. Then there's a shift now in the psalm, beginning in verse 7. Not only do the skies speak, but the scriptures speak. And, and David moves from general revelation to special revelation. The law of God, the scripture. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now you probably noticed that David, in comparing the two, writes in greater detail about special revelation. Notice what he calls it. He says it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous all together. It's exact. It is complete. In other words, although you can go outside and look up at night and see stars and moon and you can look at the sun, not directly at it during the day, and those things will tell you about God. They don't tell you enough about God. And you can't say, well, forget going to church. Forget reading the Bible and going to Bible study. I'm just going to go camping. Because after all, those stars are such great preachers of God's glory. David is saying they preach of God's glory, but they don't tell you enough about God. They're limited. Natural revelation doesn't tell you enough. doesn't tell you about the moral attributes of God. doesn't tell you about the plan of salvation of God. doesn't tell you about the love of God in Christ. You need special revelation to understand that. So the testimony of nature isn't enough. You need more. Let me give you an example of this. Remember when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah and it just blew their minds? And then Peter writes about that experience in 2 Peter. He says, we were there. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty when he was transfigured on that heavenly mount. And we heard the voice of God speak, this is my beloved son. Right after that, Peter says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Isn't that interesting? I saw and I heard miraculous things that no one else has ever seen. But I have a more sure word of prophecy. And then he said, we all do well to take heed to it. It's like a light that shines in a dark place. So nature, general revelation, like the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, dazzles the eyes but it's not enough to tell us all there is to know about God. We need special revelation. Before we jump right into these phrases, these verses, I want you just to notice another change. In, in the first part, verses 1 through 6, the name of God is mentioned only once. That's in verse 1. The name of God is mentioned seven times, beginning in verse 7 all the way down. What's important to know is that David changes the words around. The word he uses first for God is the Hebrew word El. It is the most generic, general Hebrew word there is for God. Even the Jews, for the most part, when speaking of God generally, use the word Elohim. But if you want to just speak about very general God, El, 
That's how he uses it the first time, beginning in verse 7. Over and over again, he uses the Hebrew term Yahweh, which is a special name of God in relationship to his people. It's the name God gave to Moses at Sinai. I am that I am. It's the covenant name for God. So David moves from generic God as told by the heavens to God specifically known by his people through special revelation. With that in mind, let's see then the benefits of looking at this special revelation, the word of God. Verse 7, it will refresh your soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring or refreshing your soul. Literally, the word means it'll bring you back. It'll bring you back to God. And that's always the first step in a relationship with God. You have to be converted. It's called repentance. It's called, I will get my life right with God by acknowledging my sin and I'll be aligned with Him. Have you ever had that experience where maybe somebody has shared a scripture with you or several scriptures and each time they share something, something unlocks in your own heart until finally you say, you know, I'm ready to receive Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Word of God to convert the soul. Or have you as a Christian strayed from the Lord and then you're reading something in your Bible or somebody shares something and it's like the Holy Spirit reaches out through the Scripture with His hand and brings you back to God? That's the power of the Word of God. Another way to look at it is by looking at the word perfect. It means complete. It's sound. The idea is everything you'll ever need for your soul is found in the Bible. You don't have to go anywhere else. It is totally sufficient for the needs of your soul. It is complete. I know people or I've met people who will say, well, you know, the Bible's a good book. In fact, I think everybody ought to have one. They make great doorstops. Or it's good luck to have a Bible. You want to cover all your bases. It's good at least to own one. You can put it on your coffee table. You can press flowers in it. There's a lot of handy things the Bible is good for. But as far as believing it, relying on it, living according to its principles, oh, that's another story. But when you realize it's complete, that everything you'll ever need is there, it will refresh your soul. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You'll be nourished by it. Secondly, it challenges your mind. The end of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Did you know that the word simple literally is open-minded? For those who are open-minded, their minds will be challenged and will be enriched. Are you open When somebody opens to you the scriptures, or do you automatically put up a little guard that says, I can't get into this stuff? You have to be open-minded. It will challenge and enrich, making wise the open-minded. Why? Because the scripture appeals to the facts of history. And I meet many people who say, well, I can't believe that. And, And they'll say that they're unable to believe in the Scripture. I find generally they're unwilling. I find that people will not accept the Bible, not because the Bible contradicts itself, but because the Bible contradicts them. And they fear that I'm going to discover there really is a loving God of whom I'm eternally accountable to. I don't want to discover that fact. And it contradicts their own life. But I've never met a person who has honestly looked at the evidence of the Bible with an open mind 
and after examining the evidence, rejected the Scripture. Because it says it's sure. The testimony of God is sure. You might say, well, how can I be sure that it's sure? I mean, it's one thing for the Bible to say, I am the Word of God. Anybody can claim anything. I can say, I am a Big Mac with cheese. But it's another thing to substantiate that I'm a Big Mac with cheese. The Bible claims to be sure, the Word of God. How can you know that? I was asked this question last week after this service. Well, there's several ways. First of all, accurate transmission. The Bible has been copied and disseminated for centuries, and its message has not been marred. And I've heard people say, well, you know, the Bible came to us by a bunch of zealous monks who copied it all wrong. That is an ignorant statement. Because we have the evidence of 5,500 manuscripts, either incomplete or complete documents of the New Testament. And they all match up together. And the earliest one that we have, the Gospel of John, was written about 120 A.D., about 25 to 30 years after John originally penned the Gospel. Now you compare that with the earliest copy that we have of, say, the Gaelic Wars of Caesar. The earliest copy we have is a thousand years after it was written. Or the complete copy of Homer's The Odyssey, 2,200 years after it was written. And yet nobody on college campuses will say, well, those books, you know, you, you can't really trust them. People will quote them every day, but the Bible, you can't believe it. It's just a bunch of copied errors. There is manuscript evidence. Secondly, reliable history. The Bible is not just a religious book. There's people, there's events, there's places that it writes about. It's a historical document. For example, I, uh, or you used to hear the skeptics say, you can't rely on the New Testament because they make up places. For instance, in the Gospel of John, it talks about Jesus going to the Pool of Bethesda. Now everybody knows there's no Pool of Bethesda. There is no document that we know of outside the Bible that there is a pool of Bethesda. It's not written in Jewish literature. Then they started digging around Jerusalem. Guess what they found? The pool of Bethesda. And the scripture says it has five porches, an unusual kind of a construct. And guess what they found? It had five porches. And many liberals were saying, Pontius Pilate is talked about in the New Testament. There never was such a historical Roman governor as Pontius Pilate. There's no other documents that we have that would attest to that. Then they started digging around Caesarea in Israel. And guess what they found? A stone inscription from the time of Christ with Tiberius Caesar's name on it, the regent in Rome, and Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, underneath it. And then the skeptic said, oops. <laughs> and then people started reading people like Josephus or Cornelius Tacitus or other scholars like Centonius. And all of these corroborated the events of the New Testament. Third, a unified message. Think about it. You're holding a book that is actually 66 separate books written over 1,600 years by over 40 different authors in three different languages from three different continents with all different backgrounds. And when they talk about controversial subjects like the origin of the world, God, the necessity of salvation, they're all online. What are the odds of that happening? Take medicine. What if you were to take 66 medical books written over 1,600 years from three different continents and treat somebody? You'd either create a Frankenstein or kill them. 
There's a unified message. And then fourthly, there's prophecy. God's calling card, as we've already talked about, is fulfilled prophecy. Over and over again, he says, you know what? I'm going to write or tell you something before it ever happens so that when it happens, you'll go, wow, God exists. And so he tells Abraham, your descendants will be in Egypt 400 years. It happened. He says, the children of Israel will go into captivity. They'll be there 70 years. It happened. There's 330 direct prophecies, references, or inferences that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ as Messiah. So you see, if you are open-minded, you will be enriched, you will be refreshed, you will be challenged in your mind. Now, that doesn't mean you'll understand it all. That doesn't mean, well, if you're open-minded, every time you read the Bible, everything you read you'll understand. That's ludicrous to think that. You'll understand enough. But you're still dealing with God. And you are finite. And trying as finite man or woman to understand that which is infinite is like trying to fit the Pacific Ocean in a cup. It won't work. Billy Graham writes about a crisis that he had concerning the Bible early on. And he said, early in my life. I just like to do that. I had some doubts about the Word of God. But one night in 1949, I knelt before a stump in the woods near Forest Home, California. I opened my Bible and I said, Oh God, there's many things in this book I don't understand, but I accept it by faith as your infallible word from Genesis to Revelation. I settled that. And from that moment on, I've never had a single doubt that this is God's word. And so when I quote the Bible, when I preach, I know that I'm preaching the truth of God. And you hear it in every message Billy Graham preaches, don't you? The Bible says. And it's like, whoa, there's authority when he does that. There's an example of a man who had an open mind and millions of people have been led to Jesus Christ by it. So it will refresh your soul. It will challenge your mind. Look at verse 8. It delights the heart. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Oh, how often my, my own countenance, my condition has been lifted every time I read the Scripture. I'm down and out and I read a promise. And we already read that, didn't we, in Psalm 1? The happy man is one who meditates day and night in the Word. Isaiah said, excuse me, Jeremiah, Your words were found and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. It's a promise. It'll lift you up. It'll delight your heart. Next, it will illuminate your path. Look at verse 8, the second part. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I want to give that to you in another translation. I think it's better. The commandment of the Lord shines clear and gives light to the eyes. Now, David just talked about the sun. When the sun's up, you can see where you're going. And it, it purges the darkness. It illuminates your path. And likewise, the Bible does that. It purges out the uncertainty. It gives you light for your path. Psalm 119, David said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'm still amazed how when I'm in a crisis, the Bible helps me forge a decision as I look at the principles of the Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean when I read the Bible, it's do this, don't do that. It's not always do's and don'ts. It's not like I'm going to read, Buy that house. Marry this person. Go to, it doesn't do that. There's general principles that help you think biblically. But you have to be willing to read the Bible. Then you have to be willing to do what it says. To step out in faith, so to speak. To see if it works for you. 
William Penn was the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It was named after him. And he was uh, in good standing with the Indians of that region, the Native Americans. They were having a conversation one night. And they said that he could have as much land of theirs as he could encompass by foot in one day. Next morning, before the crack of dawn, he was up. He started walking. And he walked and he walked and he walked all day after sunset to long into the night. He charted it out on a map. He had witnesses. He went back to the Indians and said, I watch your land. Now, they didn't think he was really going to do it. But they made a promise and they gave it to him. And that has become what is today Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He did what they said. They gave him a promise. He said, all right, I'll walk on it. How many promises have been left untapped? Because we haven't encompassed them, walked them, made them our own. And our path hasn't been enlightened because of that. Next, it will stabilize your future. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, it does seem odd to read about the testimony of God, the precepts of God, the law of God. And then we have this phrase, the fear of the Lord. But that's a synonym used here for the Scripture. But he is taking the effect of the Scripture and putting in the place of the cause. This is the effect that it will have, but it's a synonym for Scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean. It will endure forever. Because it will endure forever, there's no corrupting quality about it. That means you'll have stability in making choices. Isaiah put it this way, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And then, of course, you remember what Jesus said. He said, Assuredly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law until everything is fulfilled. What that means is the promise that got you through yesterday is still good today. It's not like a coupon that wears out. The promise that will get you through today will still be there tomorrow. So if in a month you get a phone call at 2 in the morning and you think, "Uh uh-oh, who could that be? Or if you go to the doctor and he says, I'm sorry, it's malignant. Whatever you hear, you can be propped up and sustained because of the enduring Word of God. It endures forever. Finally, it will guard your life. The end of verse 9 The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Have you had the experience when you open up this book that you get warned about something? You know, I found that I have never fallen in a certain area unless I've first been warned about it by God. He's always faithful to warn me. He'll say, stay away from this. The Scripture will warn you about sin and its effects. What I love about the Bible is it's honest. It'll be honest about things the world will lie about to you. The world will say, do this. Go ahead. It won't hurt you. Everybody does it. Gosh, everybody's doing it today. You can get involved in this. It's no big deal. It's just a little sin. The Bible will say, let me level with you. Stay away from that. I'm warning you now, this is a danger zone. 
It warns the servants of God. John Bunyan said, This book will keep you from sin, or this or sin will keep you from this book. He discovered that to be true. People who are often involved in a sinful experience, they don't want to read their Bible. But sin can keep you from this book. David said in Psalm 119, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the power of Scripture, it causes you to have joy. It, it gives you light to your path in making choices. It refreshes your soul, gives you everything you need, challenges your mind, keeps you from evil. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, A Bible that is coming apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. You can see somebody who reads their Bible, man, that thing is worn. And that doesn't mean you should go home today and take a a hammer and just start thrashing your Bible so it looks like you're really holy. But the idea is if you read it a lot, it'll show. And it'll also show in your own life. It'll keep you together. Notice in closing his attitude. More to be desired, verse 10, are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. That's quite a statement. He didn't say, yeah, I got a Bible and I tolerate it. It's my duty to read it, so I better do it. He said, I treasure it. I love it. How about you? Do you treasure it? You know, would you agree there's a difference between listening and receiving and treasuring? There's a big difference. I receive all sorts of mail. I don't treasure at all. I got bills this week. I didn't go, all right, a bill. I get to pay the electric company. Hallelujah. I didn't say that. I paid the bill. I didn't treasure. But then I get cards of encouragement or better than that. I I still have all the letters that my wife and I wrote to each other just before we got married. I treasure those. Jesus said, wherever a man's treasure is, that's where his heart is. David said, my treasure is in special revelation. I like looking up. It's great. I hear of your glory, but I look in your word. It's perfect. It's complete. It does everything I need for my soul, my heart, my mind, and I treasure it. It's great. Where's your treasure? I heard of a woman who had the pastor over, and she wanted to impress the pastor, so she said in a very sanctimonious tone to her son, Son, go get the book that mommy treasures so much. So he came back with the Sears catalog. (laughs) He knew. It wasn't the Bible. David closes this psalm beautifully with his own experience. He says, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults and may the meditation of my heart as well as the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Isn't it great how David writes this? He begins with the far reaches of heavens and he closes with his own heart as if to say, the skies declare your glory. The scriptures declare your glory. I want myself to declare your glory. Folks, you never graduate from Bible study until you meet the author face to face. You never graduate from enjoying nature until you understand who the creator is and you know him. Then you can say, my dad did that. You can say, my father wrote this. And God tells me about His glory, but He tells me about His love and His plan for my life right here. And maybe you're the kind of a person who has sat and looked at the stars and enjoyed them and went, cool. Wouldn't it be great to know the Creator personally? 
Maybe you've read the scripture at different times, but you don't know the author. Wouldn't it be great to have all of these benefits that David said he enjoyed and that God's people can enjoy? The first step is having your soul converted, as he said, turning back to God, knowing him as your personal Lord and Savior. And this morning, if you haven't done that, hey, there's no greater time than this time. We're celebrating freedom on this Fourth of July weekend. But some of you don't have freedom. You're still shackled by sin, habits, thoughts. You can be free because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, and we pray, Lord, that those of us who know you would appreciate creation, the heavens, all the more because we know the artist himself. I pray, Lord, that your word would not be a duty but a delight. It would be something that we treasure as our chief joy. And we pray, Lord, that not only would the heavens declare your glory and the Bible declare your love, but that our lives would declare your handiwork. And I pray for people who have come but never committed their life personally to Jesus Christ today, that they would have the courage to turn back to the God who made them and who loves them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.